0: This is Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me, I'm Alex Bennett. And this chapter is entitled Coda. Coda is a word meaning finale, and it's hard to kind of say this is the finale because my life isn't over yet. There may be still other adventures, and if so, I guess I will eliminate this chapter and add a new chapter. But in the meantime, this is the coda for life in the passing lane. And somehow I've got to sit here and sum it up. And the, and the difficult part about summing it up is that how do you take one's life, a life that has gone on for 67 chapters, and, and sum it all up just you know, Wrap it all up, say that's it, and uh, make some kind of statement about what you've learned in life and so on. And so in a lot of ways, this chapter has become the hardest for me to do. In fact, I've stalled it for a few days because I couldn't figure out exactly what to say, how to end it. You know, you always want to have that final ending, you know, and, and the, the, but this isn't the finale. This is simply a pause in my life. As of this recording, I'm going to be turning seventy seven shortly. And how do you look back over seventy seven years and sum it all up and create a finale, as it were? What have I learned? I don't know if I learned a hell of a lot. You know, Marlon Brando had, had a had a great saying. Uh, somebody once interviewed him and he said, "What do you think's going to happen after you die?" And he said, I'm probably going to look back and say, what was that all about? And the question is, what was this all about? I mean, I lived a life. I had a good one, I think. I didn't think it was any good while it was going on, but I guess it was okay. You know, I mean, I, I was not unsuccessful, although yet in my mind I wasn't successful at all. Uh, it, uh, it It's as though uh, things that appear to be one way really were another. Yes, I was far more successful than I would ever like to believe. And I've been very lucky that way. And I've been very lucky to live a life in, in broadcasting. Let's go back to the very beginning again because I've got to talk to you about my hopes and my dreams when I was a kid. And my hope and dream was if nothing more to be in show business some form of show business i didn't know what it was going to take at one point i wanted to be an actor and uh, then i uh, in high school started doing this radio show and all of a sudden that was the direction it was taking me and uh if if what i wanted to do as a child turned out to be what i did in life then i'm one of those very few people who ever got that dream Uh, because a lot of people want to be something when they're a kid. I want to be a cowboy. I want to be an astronaut. And when they grow up, they become used car salesmen. In my case, I wanted to be in show business. And damn it, I wound up in show business. I remember first being introduced to radio when I was lying in my bedroom, looking up at Coit Tower out of my bedroom window in San Francisco listening to all these adventures of people and these comedy shows and so on, and wishing that I could do exactly the same thing. I love the possibility, even at that age, of what radio was. It was theater of the imagination. Lacking a picture, you had to make up the imagery that people were going to have in their minds of you, of your show, of what you were doing. And if it were a drama, that the people were shooting each other or kissing each other, and you would imagine this in your mind because there was no picture. You filled it in with your brain. When television came along, our imaginations started to kind of wane a little bit because we weren't forced to use our imaginations And uh, so radio changed in in what it did. It no longer did dramas. It no longer did variety shows. It no longer did any of that stuff because it, it really couldn't compete with this new age of television. But it survived because it found a way to survive. And that way of surviving was in the form of playing music with very strong broadcast personalities. In other words, in the old days, we had disc jockeys, but they weren't just disc jockeys. They were part of our lives. They had an act, and they played that act out. My favorite when I was growing up was a guy by the name of Don Sherwood in San Francisco. And if one of my predecessors who influenced me the most was anybody, it was Don Sherwood. A guy who I would listen to every day just to see what was happening to him the next day. And, 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 and that day, I was going to tune in the next day to see how this thing developed that he had talked about on this day. And there was a, a sucking me into the life of this radio personality, and I saw what radio could be. I had seen what it could be when it was doing dramas, and now I could see what it could be when you were being a, a radio personality. So all these things came together to make up Alex Bennett. Of course, my name is really Bennett Schwarzman, and I took a showbiz name because that's what you're supposed to do when you get into show business. You can't use your real name. No. So I, Bennett Schwarzman became Alex Bennett after a, after a time. It started out as Jerry Bennett, but that's embarrassing. Anyway, um. What I saw were the possibilities from two sides, the way radio had been and the way radio had become. And now I find myself at 77, a has-been. Better to be a has-been than a never was, but a has-been nonetheless, because there is no radio business anymore. There is no radio broadcasting going on. What it is, is the last gasps of a dying form. Let me explain. I read all these articles in broadcast magazines of people saying, oh no, radio is at its best point and we've got all these talk shows and we've got all these music shows, but the one thing they forget is they don't have an audience. They're starting to lose audience. And they're starting to lose audience because they're not doing the one thing. The one thing you have to do in order to get an audience, and that's entertain them. And they've also had other places to go. Here I'm doing this. I'm still broadcasting. It's just not to the same-sized audience I once broadcast to. But anybody with a computer and a microphone can do a show. And some of them are pretty good. Some of them, most of them really suck. I mean, when you've got 12 people in a market a small market doing radio shows, that's one thing. When you've got all the people in that market being able to go online and do their own little programs, then you've got a thousand broadcasters. You get what I'm saying? In other words, uh, there's a very small, minute amount of people doing the Internet who are doing anything that really is great, okay? But those who are, God bless them. You know, And I'm trying to do my thing here with uh, what we call GabNet. I don't know what I'm trying to say here except that radio is dead. The medium that I love, the medium that I wanted to be a part of, the medium that I devoted my entire life to is dead. Uh, and I keep thinking, oh, where can I get myself a radio job? And then you think about the fact that well, there really isn't radio out there. And what I have to offer, these guys don't want. And the fact that they don't want what I have to offer is a good clue to why they're failing to begin with. It's because they're not doing the basics of broadcasting. They're not entertaining the public any longer. And all they look at are radio stations that are part of what they call a cluster. You know, somebody like iHeartRadio will own 10 stations in a cluster. And they only care what those 10 stations in total make for them. And it's all a money thing. And it's not who can we get that will entertain people or drag people in to listen. And some stations are even told that their job is to lose because they've got a format that another station has in the cluster who's doing very well, and they don't want to screw the pooch, so you don't do as well as they do. What kind of radio is that? You know, I remember radio. You know, I hate to say this. I remember radio. You know, it sounds like an old fart saying, I remember radio, I remember radio. But I do remember radio when... You, there were like seven stations that you were allowed to own AM, seven FM, and seven TV. And so that being the case, if you had a station in a market, that was the only one you owned in that market because you were only allowed to own one per market. So what did this mean? This meant that everybody went on the air and attempted to beat each other's brains out. I mean, just bash them to hell. And the salesmen were on the street trying to bash the other salesmen. And it was a very competitive market. And what did that bring? That made everybody want to entertain more. It made everybody want to get ears. And so there was a lot of lively competition going on. You know, the Republicans always say that competition is healthy. Well, I don't think competition is healthy where corporations are concerned. But I do think competition is very healthy in broadcasting. It kept it alive. It made it exciting. But there's no competition anymore. Hey, we've got our 10 stations. They make so much money. The other guy's got 10 stations. He makes so much money. The other guy's got 10. That's all they care about. They don't care about entertaining you. And so the younger ears have gone to the Internet. The younger eyes have gone to the Internet. Uh, And uh, that's where broadcasting now resides, but not in the same form that it did. I don't think the radio I loved when I was growing up, of course, would never, ever exist today. And the radio that I loved when I was a teenager that had changed because of television is not there anymore either. Um, I've got to tell you, when I did my shows in San Francisco, I did my ultimate dream. I mean, if anybody says, Have you, did you live out your dream at any point in your life? I would have to say that San Francisco was the living out of the dream. Dream number one, to work in my hometown, San Francisco. Dream number two was to do radio like I used to hear when I would lie there in bed looking up at Coit Tower in North Beach, out of my window. And hear people doing shows with audiences and orchestras and big openings and things that would just knock your socks off. And I got to do that in San Francisco. Because when I became popular enough, I started doing programs with a live studio audience. In fact, from the very beginning, I I started bringing them in to be there. And so every morning that I did a show in San Francisco, practically, there was a live studio audience. And then sometimes we would take that live studio audience to a nightclub or we would take them to the Fairmont Hotel where I would have a huge orchestra playing, introducing the show and playing music for the show. I was doing that radio show that I used to listen to in my bed when I was growing up as a child. And that was my dream, and I was living the dream. I don't know how much I realized that I was living the dream after I looked back at my whole life, but I would have to say the seminal period for me, the best period of my life in broadcasting, had to be that period of time in San Francisco where I got to live out my dream. Okay, And um, I thank everybody who was involved in that period of my life. I went on to other things in my life. I mean, I spent more time, uh, uh, almost more time in New York at uh, Sirius XM than I, than I did at Live 105 in San Francisco. But that period of time in, at Live 105 in San Francisco and the quake and KMEL to a lesser extent were the periods of my life that I think gave me the most gratification and had me live out my dream. You know, I've never gotten very rich in this business because I've always spent everything I made. I was making some really good money in San Francisco, didn't save any of it. Uh, but part of the reason was I never cared about the money. Maybe that was my big mistake. Or maybe that was the reason why maybe I at least was as good as I, as I, as I could be. Um, because I didn't care about money. Money wasn't the object. Getting the audience was the object. Getting people to listen to you. Getting to make people laugh and enjoy themselves and wait to see what happens on your show tomorrow. That was what I lived for. I didn't live for that paycheck. I know this is going to come as a big surprise to my program director in San Francisco who listens to these episodes. uh, But if you didn't even pay me, I would still do it. Okay, And I proved that when I came first came to New York and told Sirius that I would work for nothing. Uh, and they took me up on the offer for a while. I loved what went on in San Francisco. So I have to say that that is, in fact, my favorite part of my life. The part of my life where I felt that I was doing something, I was uh, a part of something, was New York, where I was kind of dubbed the youth guru. And I was into that politics of the time, the hippie politics, the yippie politics. And and I also had a lot of great rock stars on my show at that time. That also was living out the dream, but not to the extent that I was living out the dream in San Francisco. So all these things come together and they make up Alex Bennett. I'm a little bit... Uh, old radio. I'm very much old radio. I still think, am I creating an image in people's minds when I'm talking, right? I prefer radio over television, and I've done television. I have two Emmys for television, but I'd never liked television. Why? Because I was just a performing chimp in TV, in radio. I was the show, okay? So, that was the most fulfilling time of my life with San Francisco. Which brings us around to, you know, all the other questions. Who influenced you? Don Sherwood? Jack Parr? To a lesser extent, oddly enough, David Letterman. There was a timing that David Letterman had that I kind of, uh, I won't say lifted, I, it just affected me and my performance. Uh, I think he had some of the greatest timing of any modern-day television guy. Of course, the best guy for timing, if you want to go back to anybody, was Jack Benny. This guy had perfect, spot-on timing. Learned a lot from Jack Benny. There's a lot of Jack Benny in me. Do you know the part of Jack Benny that's in me? If you ever listen to my radio programs, I am never really pulling a joke on somebody. They are pulling the joke on me. People would make fun of me. They would joke about me. They would make jokes about my young girlfriends. They would make jokes about, you know, hey, uh, no, you're not getting fat. Uh, I was the butt of jokes. And in that, to that extent, I wasn't so much a comedian as I was a, a, a clown. Uh, and uh, Jack Benny taught me that art of being the butt of the joke. So people always used to say to me, do you mind it when people on the show uh, say things about you and make fun of you for such, th- such and such things? And I go, eh, not really. No, I loved every minute of it because that's what I was attempting to do. I don't mind being the butt of jokes. And I've even lived my private life that way. I mean, I'm, I'm the butt of jokes for my, for my wife, for crying out loud. Anyway, um, uh, so all that timing and everything came from Jack Benny. The clown part came from Jack Benny. How to be a personality on radio came from Don Sherwood. And uh, there was Jack Parr. Jack Parr taught me something that was completely invaluable to my being and to my personality on radio. And that was you open your soul to your audience. You let your gut spill out on the air. If something happens to you and it bothered you, and you have to talk about it. Then you talk about it, and that's what I took away from Jack Parr was the being a real, a real accessible human being on the air. All these things, and and mind you, I'm not saying that I'm as good as Jack Parr, or Don Sherwood, or, or David Letterman, or Jack Benny, but all those people uh, were better than I was. But I became a combination of them, and that combination you know of as Alex Bennett. What else do I have to say in this coda? Well, um, not much, really. You know, uh, I, could, I could tell you that uh, I think my life on the whole, if I look back on it, some people say, has it gone by that fast? And then when I do something like this, this audiobiography, biography, I go, has it gone by that slowly? And when I think about it, it's gone by very slowly. But here one day, I I wake up from that bed looking out at Coit Tower to a bed looking out at Harlem 77 years later. And I go, just like Marlon Brando said, what was that all about? Well, I think what it's about is if you can spend your life doing what you want to do, not having other people force you to do things you don't want to do, then you've lived a fulfilling life. And I think I've managed to do that. I mean, much to my detriment. I mean, ask any of my program directors. I guess that's why I was so adamant to get my way because the only way was my way. It was the only thing I could live with the next morning. There were guys in this business who could go in Hell, there are right-wing talk show hosts who don't give a shit about politics and maybe are even to the left, but they go on and they do the you know, uh, the, the, uh, the right-wing stuff because there's money in it. I could never do that. I was asked to do that once. I had an agent that said to me, hey, if you could be a right-winger, I can get you a lot of work. And I went, yeah, but you'd have to take the cunt gun away from my mouth you know, because I'm going to shoot myself or want to shoot myself every morning. So I have to say that while there have been moments where I could have been more successful, uh, where there are moments where I could have had a bigger career, I passed those up for principle and for what I cared about me doing and that I could look myself in the mirror the next day and say, okay, guy, you know, at least you're doing what you want to do. But here I find myself at a point in my life where I am largely unhirable. I'm unhirable not for any other reason, but for my age. I mean, if you listen to me right now, is this the sound of a guy who's 77 years old? No. But it is the face of a 77-year-old, and when I walk into a radio station and say, hey, I'd like a job here, they go, yeah, he's at the end of his life for crying out loud. He'll be dead any day now. Oh uh, No, get, get that young kid who'll work for free. You know, work for a dollar an hour. And so really, I have to be realistic when I say I probably will never, ever have a job again in the business that I love, which is radio. The other thing I've come to a reality is that doing this is what I've done all my life. Creating GabNet was a whole thing that my life was about, about trying to constantly change the way things are done. So I came out with a way to change the way talk shows are done. And then I came out with a different way of telling somebody your life story. And the, that constant inventiveness still goes on, so whether they won't let me work at a radio station or not, and because I can't get a job at one, doesn't mean I stop. And it doesn't mean really that I haven't lied to you from the beginning of this episode by calling this a coda, because it's not a finale. It is simply, as I said in the last episode, a pause. A moment in time in which I stop, I reflect, and then hopefully I move on. And hopefully, this is chapter 67. There will be a chapter 68. And in that chapter, I will tell you some wondrous tale about something that happened to me that I just had to add to the book as an addendum. In the meantime, I want to thank everybody who was part of my life. Yes, all the wives. Let's see, there was Linda. There was um, Ronnie. There was Susan, and now there's Marjorie, and I love all of them. Uh, I don't know. I really can't love Linda because I don't know whatever happened to her. But the others I love, and I still talk to them, and I, you know, uh, they've made my, they've enriched my life. And to all the lovers I've had, you enriched my life too. Even the ones that brought me great misery and depression. I love you, too. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of my life. Thank you for fucking me. Because I'm just that kid you know, from San Francisco who had no self-esteem and still to this day can't figure out why anybody would want to fuck me. Is this any way to end an audio biography? Uh, but thanks to all those women in my life. You, you were very important to it and helped me take this journey in a much more pleasant way and of course i have to talk about my present wife and just say you know god bless her she's putting up she's putting up with a a rough road you know she's putting up with all the negatives that have been pummeled into me over the years but she lives with it and i know she loves me and i love her too so that's it Uh, what can i say how do I end this thing? What do I, what's, the, what's the big statement that I make? And there is no big statement. The only statement is, if you're going to live a life and you're going to do something and you want to do something, don't ever regret that you didn't do it. Go out there and get the job done because it's going to make you feel good. But if you're going to spend your life doing stuff other people want you to do and you do out of necessity and so on, uh, you're going to come to my age and go, hmm, what was that all about? I know what it was all about, but I'm keeping that a secret. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio by me. I'm Alex Bennett. Goodbye.